Part of a voice that we've been eager to add to this conversation belongs to Philip Yancey. Uh, I won't take long for an introduction. You've already seen on the website his bio. But Philip brings a conversation he's been having with Jesus for years now to this time through books, articles, blogs, a fabulous website. Philip has been a voice of what it means to know Jesus. A lot of people have taken their image, their understanding of who Jesus is off the pages that Philip has shared with us. To have him here, to hear his voice and his touch all in one place is a gift to us. And so, Philip, we would love to add your voice to our conversation. Come ahead now, and when he is finished, uh, Bart, who we already know, will come, and, and they'll begin a Q&A with us. You know, one of the things I enjoyed learning about you was that you have climbed every major peak in Colorado. Is that true, or are you making the that up to be? 54 14ers, and so has my wife. She finished last September. We're all ears. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. I would feel better if we, uh, if we opened in prayer. Dear God, I pray that you would deliver me of the desire to be entertaining and funny and look smart and the desire to compete with those we've already heard, all the guys with the letter A in their names, Carl and Jay and Bart and much less Tony and Tom Wright, because we are gathered together to focus on you. And I pray that every one of us, including me, would do that in this next hour together. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with a commercial announcement because during lunch, the 1230 lunch, there will be a, a book signing and, and the church has very graciously opened their bookstore and numerous books from speakers are here. All of mine are at at least a 33% discount and there's one that's at a 100% discount. It's absolutely free. But it's ebook only called The Question That Never Goes Away, the latest uh, reflection I did on the problem of pain and suffering. So if you want one of those, stop by. We'll tell you how to get it. And we'd love to meet you during the lunch hour. I'll try to grab a, a bite here or there. I've been looking at this mosaic and was looking at it before the conference began. And by the way, only one or two of those Jesuses are smiling, which I don't think is quite accurate. But... Uh, Carl, if I was doing this conference, I wouldn't call it simply Jesus. I would call it complicatedly Jesus, I think. <laughs> the mosaic shows that. Uh, there's nothing simple about him. As Bart said last night, especially in the evangelical tradition, our Bibles tend to open to Paul. He's so logical. He's easy to outline. He's easy to preach about. Jesus, uh, squirrely. <laughs> Brennan Manning, uh, calculated that 183 times people came and asked Jesus a direct question. You know how many times he gave a direct answer? Three. Three. That's tough to preach. I don't, I, I, I don't know anyone more surprising, baffling, uh, frustrating, rattling, inspiring, astonishing, the word we're hearing here. He only worked three years. I mean, think about it, how long you've worked. He only worked three years, um, didn't seem to be that very organized. I, I don't think Jesus started each day with a things I got to do today list. <laughs> most of his miracles, most of his teaching was what they call occasional. It just kind of was prompted by whatever he ran into. It wasn't scheduled. It wasn't on his to-do list. And yet... And yet he changed the world more than anyone else, bar none. So that's why we're here, to try to figure out what it is about Jesus that did change the world, the effect on the world, and the effect on us. I know that you're going to hear a lot of words, and it's hard to remember words, it's hard to remember thoughts, it's easier to remember images. So I'm going to give you just a couple of images to take away. And the first image, we'll go ahead and put it on the screen, what do you think that is? Anybody know? It's a book, right? It, OED, very good. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm a writer. I work with words all day long, so I decided I need a good dictionary. 
and I researched this, I found out the best dictionary in the world is the Oxford English Dictionary. It has supposedly every word in the English language. I keep getting supplements every year. So I said, I'm going to go buy one. And I started looking around. I found out that it comes in 20 volumes and costs $3,000. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe I don't need the best dictionary in the world. <laughs> but then one day, I got a mailing from a book club. And the book club said, if you join our book club, you can get the Oxford English Dictionary for $29.95. I think you have to buy a, a book a month the rest of your life, you know. But I, I wanted that dictionary. So I ordered the dictionary and was so excited when I came. But the package was very small. And then when I opened it, that's what I found. Not 20 volumes, but one volume. And it shrank down. You can see nine pages on each page. So there are 18 pages of the big one. And it, it, looks, it looks like pepper. It looks like somebody spilled pepper on the page. So I had to go on another shopping expedition. I had to find a magnifying glass. Now, you know about magnifying glasses. The magnifying glass costs more than the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the kind that jewelers do, you know, watchmakers, you know, they turn that, the light buzzes a little bit. And then after I turn 50, it actually takes two magnifying glasses. But between those two, I've got every word in the English language. I learned about magnifying glasses, and every time I look up a word, I'm reminded of this. What's in the center is sharp and clear and in focus. Get beyond the center, and it starts getting fuzzier and fuzzier. In fact, it's so clear in focus, as you know, if you're a little kid playing around, you can take a magnifying glass and start a fire or burn an ant or all sorts of things. And I concluded that Jesus is and should be the magnifying glass of my faith. If you go back and look at some of the book titles of early books that I wrote, most of them are out in the margins, out in the murky areas, out in the questions. And I learned, as I got to know Jesus, whenever I had a question out in the margins, to first begin by bringing that magnifying glass and focusing it on Jesus. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, prayer. I, for years, I, I, I just didn't understand prayer. I mean, if God knows everything anyway, what is the point of repeating something to a God who already knows it? And uh, unanswered prayers. The prayers I care about most don't seem to be answered. People die, and they don't get healed. And so why pray? Is, what's the point? And the simple answer I found is, well, because Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus knew how the universe worked. And yet, when an important thing came along, he would spend all night. He'd pull all-nighters doing nothing but praying. Sometimes, when there were a lot of human needs around him, he'd get in a boat and row across the lake and, and pray. He believed that the prayer was as important as the stuff he could be doing with his hands, with his mouth. So that's a good reason to pray. Unanswered prayers. I, I wrote an article one time, I don't think anybody ever published it, called Jesus' Unanswered Prayers. And I went through the Gospels and I made a list of them. You know, he, one of those all-nighters, he said, he said, Father, I'm going to choose my 12 disciples. I, I, I want the most you know, the, the most worthy, loyal, great disciples. And I'm sure many times after that, he, he would say, Father, uh, <laughs> these guys don't get it. <laughs> I wanted the best, not the dullest. And they all ended up being traitors. He prayed uh, other unanswered prayers. You know the one about Gethsemane. Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And then from the cross, why have you forsaken me? And then that prayer that people pray every day, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not been answered yet. Just look around, read the paper. So Jesus understood unanswered prayers, and he who knew how the universe worked thought it not a waste of time, an investment of time to pray. Keep that magnifying glass focused on Jesus. The problem of suffering. Did I mention there's a free book available at lunchtime on the problem of suffering? Well, there is. And every time I'm, I'm pulled into these places, one of the stories I tell in this book is in March, a year ago, 
we went to Japan for the first anniversary of the tsunami. You probably remember those amazing images. We didn't pay for this one. That's why they had, still have the Getty image thing on it. But it's a picture of the tsunami ro rolling in, 30-foot wall of water, just tossing ships and, and cars and vans and... 20,000 people died, and whenever one of those things happen, immediately the spokespeople jump in and start talking about God's will. Uh, one prominent evangelical here in the United States said, oh, well, we know why the tsunami occurred. It's because they worship the sun god. Haven't you seen the Japanese flag? At Colorado, uh, in September, we were going through a flood. I live by a creek, and I'm out there every, every night measuring as it starts six feet below five feet, four feet, three feet, two feet, got to 10 inches of flooding our house, and I'm out there with a yardstick. Well, do you know why that happened? I, I, a Colorado Springs pastor told me, he said, he said, do you think it's any coincidence that the worst wildfires in Colorado history and the worst floods in Colorado history occurred the same year that our legislature approved gay marriage, civil unions, and legalized marijuana? And we're so quick with these explanations of God's will that are so unhelpful. Do you know why people hate us? <laughs> so how do, you, how do you figure that stuff out? Did God cause the tsunami, the flood in Colorado? Well, you get that magnifying glass and you pull it over and look at Jesus. And just follow Jesus around. At no time when Jesus met someone who was going through pain and suffering did he say, well, it's God's will, you deserved it. The disciples did, and he would immediately contradict them. In fact, I've, I no longer talk about God's will. I talk about God's desire. I'll let the theologians try to figure out the intricacies of God's will. I know what God's desire is because God gave us a face, the face of Jesus. And if you want to know how God feels about those who are going through hard times, just follow Jesus around and see how he handles a widow who's just lost her only son or even a Roman soldier whose servant has fallen ill. You'll see God's desire. Jesus said, I want God's will to the Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know how God's will is done on heaven, in heaven. I made a list. I was thinking, what could I talk about here? I made a list of, of things we wouldn't know without Jesus. Things that you just couldn't come up with on your own. Natural theology would not bring you to these conclusions. They're the astonishing things that Jesus tells us we wouldn't know in any other way. The first one I learned from um, a prostitute, actually. Uh, I was invited one time a few years ago to speak at a conference where different ministries involve 40 different countries in sexual trafficking and especially freeing women from prostitutions. They brought about a hundred of their converts together and they asked me to speak on grace. They said, these folks have such a hard time understanding grace. Could you speak? And I said, well, yeah, I, I'd be glad to talk to them about grace, but I, I really want to hear their story. Could you arrange it so that I hear their stories? And they said, yes. And I'll never forget that eve, that afternoon, it took, about two and a half hours, we were in a room with uh, theater-style seating and, and 100 prostitutes and me. And I said, I, I'm a journalist and I want to hear your story. And I heard incredible stories. It's not like you see on TV. It's not like Las Vegas. Most of these stories, many of them were from developing countries and they told tale after tale of degradation and shame and humiliation and abuse. And at the end, I, I said, you know, actually, you're in the Bible. Did you know that? And some of them obviously didn't know that. They're kind of new to the faith. I said, yes, there are several stories about prostitutes in Jesus' day. There's one story, and I, I always have to be real careful when I tell this, because those of you who are pastors know what this is like. You're talking along, and, and suddenly people get a weird look on their face. <laughs> And you know you said something really wrong, but you don't know what it was. And your wife or husband will tell you quickly after the meeting, but the, the rest of the time, what did I say? Wait, was it a bad word? Did something slip out? So once I was telling the story of Luke 7, the woman of ill repute who came in the middle of a dinner Jesus was having, and 
And I told the story, and people got this weird look. And, and later, I asked my wife, what did I say? And she said, well, you told about the woman who came and washed Jesus' hair with her feet. <laughs> now, we've all seen documentaries of people who were born without arms, and they, you know, they learned to <laughs> shave and comb their hair and stuff. That's not what happened. It was, it was a woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. I told that story, and then I said, and, and I said Jesus gave you a great compliment. He said, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will come first in the kingdom of God ahead of the religious professionals. And they kind of brightened up. Why do you think he chose you? And they sat there for a minute. And then finally, this one woman raised her hand. She had already told her wrenching story. She had been sold as a child into sexual slavery from Bulgaria. Her English was not too good. And she said, well, you know, everybody, everybody, see how somebody looked down on except us. We are at the low. She said, Nobody, nobody's mama say, honey, when you grow up, I want you to be best prostitute in town. Most of us, we don't know our family. They kick us out. And sometimes when you are at the low, you cry for help. And I thought, that's about as good a definition of grace as I've seen. Because in, in, in the scene, like with the woman who came and, and washed Jesus' feet, and in the scene of the woman caught in the act of adultery, the, the Pharisees, the good religious people, they all have... They have a vision of two groups of people, good people like us and bad people like her. And Jesus said, no, no, there, there are two groups here. There are people who are in need of grace and deny it and people who are in need of grace and admit it at the low. And grace is a free gift of God. You can't do anything to earn it, but to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open. If you close your hands as the Pharisees were doing, it falls to the ground. Unreceived. I don't see that in other faiths. You ask most people, do the polls. What's a religion about? It's, it's about making us be better people, being good. Have you ever thought how odd it is that when God wanted to send a son to earth, he chose the most religious, moral, goodest people in the world and said, we got to start over. The wineskins won't hold it anymore. And he chose as a missionary Paul, who was one of the best of the best, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And yet when he got it, that it's not by those works, he looked back on that whole law that he had spent his life trying to fulfill and said, it's like, it's like phase one kindergarten. It's a paedagogos to lead us to something more. It's not about being good. It's a free gift from God. It's not radical at all to say God loves good people. Every, everybody says that. It's radical to say God loves bad people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's those who were at the low. When I was writing the Jesus I never knew, I, I went through and made a line through the Gospels of each person who encountered Jesus. And the line goes like this. The more respectable and sophisticated and civilized and responsible a person is, the more threatened they were by Jesus, the more irresponsible, outcast, immoral a person is, the more attracted they were to Jesus. And it seems like the church has reversed that. It seems like we mostly spend our time trying to make our, a place that's comfortable for good people to feel good in. I, th I think it was Greg Boyd who said, the church is basically a nice person standing before nice people telling them to be nicer. <laughs> well, not every church, not every church. You know, there's a church here in, in Denver, some of you may be from, the Church for All Sinners and Saints. Anybody here from that church? You're not admitting it, are you? Uh, Nadia, you know, I, I love that name. I, I'm still looking for the saints, but it's a church for all sinners. That's what, that's what nobody could come up with, had come up with, until Jesus came. Second thing I learned that I only learned from Jesus is that God is humble. Humble. Paul's so clear about that. There was an early hymn, Philippians 2. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, even though he was in the form of God, 
did not cling to those prerogatives, but gave them up and became condescended all the way down to become a human being, not just that, a servant, not just that, a servant who died for you. And the early church would sing that. Uh, that's radical. That's radical. I'll tell you uh, the liturgy of what, what most faiths get across um, comes from Monty Python, the meaning of life. Uh, should have brought the clip. I, I don't know how to download that kind of stuff. But, so I'm going to get you to help me out. This is a scene where a chaplain of a, of a school there is going through the, the liturgy. And so uh, responsive, I will say something and then you repeat it, okay? Lord, you are so big. Lord, you are so big. Ooh, you are so big. Ooh, you are so, big. so absolutely huge. Gosh, we're all really impressed down here. And it kind of goes on there. You are so strong and well, just so super fantastic. Amen? Amen. Okay. That pretty well sums up what almost everybody thinks about God, right? You, God is big. God is huge. God is super. No one before Jesus would say God is humble. You're going to hear a lot about that as Christmas season rolls around because that's what Christmas is all about. And some of the great hymns, some of the great sayings, Martin Luther, he whom worlds could not enwrap, yonder lies in Mary's lap. G.K. Chesterton, the hands that had made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Who could come up with that stuff? No natural theology would give you that. That's the incarnation. That's what it's about. And I, I know of no greater contrast in the Bible than the contrast between someone who is possessed by an evil spirit and someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. We have scenes in the Bible of people who are possessed by an evil spirit. They're made into caricatures of human beings. They, they're rigid, catatonic foaming at the mouth, they throw themselves into a fire. That's what an, a, an evil spirit does. It takes hold of you, it turns you into a non-human. And when Paul talks about possession by the Holy Spirit, he uses words like these, quench not the spirit, grieve not the spirit. That one who made the universe becomes so small, says, don't hurt me, don't push me away. God is humble. We wouldn't know that apart from Jesus. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to a Jewish person or a Muslim? Good luck. I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity. You can talk to Tom Wright about that tomorrow morning. <laughs> but when I look at it, it's... It looks to me kind of like a three-act play that only makes sense in reverse. Now, I know the Spirit, the Son, we're all present at creation. Don't, don't get me wrong here. But if you just look at the story, the narrative arc of the Bible, the first part primarily focuses on God the Father. And God the Father is huge, super, like we were saying in the Monty Python liturgy. And if you went to... The children of Israel, the Hebrews, uh, wandering around the Sinai Peninsula and said, uh, excuse me, could you tell me, yeah, I understand you worship a god. Could you tell me, what is this god like? Well, first, a little Jewish girl would be shocked that you, we, uh, we don't say that, that name. That, we don't say that name. And even today, good Jews don't spell it out all the way, G blank D. But the Yahweh, the one we worship, He's huge, he's big, he's, he's smoke. See that mountain over there, the smoke and fire? And, and, and see, that's our leader, Moses. And when he meets with him, he comes out, he's glowing. We can't even talk to him. It, God is, he's huge. And God is very intervened in, very intervenes in earth, but usually when he does, there are body bags, scorch marks. <laughs> There's not a lot of relationship going on. If you go to a little Jewish girl in maybe A.D. 31, 32, and say, what is God like? She would say, well, I was always raised hearing this, but, 
But there's this guy, this prophet, and he looks just like any other guy, but he's from Galilee of all places. And, and I don't know, but he says, if you've seen me, you've seen, I, I don't get it. But I, I, there was this dead guy, and, and then one time he was in a boat, and the storm came up, and he just stood up and said, cut that out, and it, it changed the weather. So I, I don't know, maybe that's God. And that's not something we would come up with on our own. Why, why that progression, and it is a progression, it's not a, this plan failed, so let's try this plan. The progression is God finding a way, in quotes, to relate to people like us. That takes humility. That takes condescension to descend to be with us because we're so different. Jesus was that one. When Jesus died, the curtain in the most holy place that had always separated God from the people tore in two. And Hebrew says, now you can approach the throne of grace boldly. Not the throne of justice, not the throne of holiness, not the throne of power, not the throne of revenge, you killed my son, but the throne of grace. I've come that low, at the low, I'm with you. I'm a victim too. The word Jesus used, of course, you can still hear when he talked about God. You can go to Israel, you can go to Syria, parts where they still speak Aramaic, and you'll see children who turn to their father and say, Abba, Abba. And that's the word that Jesus used. You wouldn't come up with that on your own without Jesus. Jesus reveals about God. He condescends to the low. He loves the wrong kind of people. He's humble. He's approachable. Why does he do that? Because God is into relationship. God is love. Not a verb, a noun. God is love. Can't help loving. Will find a way to love. Did find a way to love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Those are things that Jesus makes clear to me, the center of the magnifying glass. There are some things that get a little muddy. And I'm going to give you another image to take home, and this is my favorite picture of the church. It comes from a true story, because the third person of the Trinity, of course, is the Spirit. And we had the act with God being the main character, and then the act with Jesus being the main character, and Jesus said, but I, actually, that's not what it's all about. It's for your good that I'm going away. That's when the fun starts. And we are the church. So this picture of the church I got from the Ukraine. It's a true story in 2004. Ukraine had been part of the Soviet empire one by one. The countries broke off, started moving toward democracy. Ukraine was one of the latest, one of the most tardy in moving toward democracy. They did have elections, but the Communist Party, party in power, counted the votes, and everybody knew it was a foregone conclusion. Well, one year, Viktor Yushchenko bravely challenged the party in power. And we have dirty elections here in the United States, but not this dirty. I brought a picture of Viktor Yushchenko. On the left, handsome young man. On the right, they tried to kill him, so they gave him dioxin poisoning. And everyone thought, he almost died, everyone thought he would withdraw from the election, but he didn't. He stayed in. And everybody knew he's, there's no way he's going to win because they count the votes. But all the exit polls showed that he won by about 10% of the vote at least. And, and yet that night on Ukrainian television, they, they did something different. They, the newscaster said, we would like to announce the votes of the election. The challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, was decisively defeated. Blah, blah, blah. Well, there happened to be, this is a very brave woman. I brought her picture, true story. Very brave woman who, on Ukrainian television, in the lower right-hand corner, there's a woman who does sign language for the hearing impaired. And she says, she, this is an incredibly brave woman, she says, they're announcing the results of election that Yushchenko lost. We all know they're lying through their teeth. <laughs> they stole our election. And if you want to protest, go to the town square in downtown Kiev tonight. Deaf people started the orange revolution in the Ukraine. True story. They got on their text phones. They got on their cell phones, mobiles. They texted. 
They stole our election. We're supposed to go to the town square. And that night, 200,000 people showed up. And they brought their sleeping bags and their tents, and it kept growing and growing. Eventually, well over a million people were there. Finally, they had to reschedule elections, and this time, Yushchenko won. And so here's my picture of the church. It's that big screen, little screen. Uh, if you want to know the big screen, the church doesn't usually control the big screen. It's, I just go to any magazine rack, and it's all about glitz and glamour and celebrity and fame and beauty and wealth and stuff like that. That's all you see on magazine covers, which doesn't reflect reality, of course. They're supermodels, not ordinary people. And yet, again and again, we're told this is what matters, wealth and success and fame and beauty. A lot, that's not just true now when there are magazines like this. It's always been true. The powerful write the history. And then comes along a man in the lower right-hand corner who says they're lying through their teeth. It's, it's not the rich who are blessed. It's the poor. It's not, it's not the happy. It's those who mourn. It's those who are persecuted. What does it profit you if you gain the whole and lose your soul? The people who go through life thinking they're at the low are going to end up at the top. And the people who go through life thinking I'm number one are going to end up at the bottom. That's a counter message to our society. I brought along a picture. And I don't know if you can move that up a little bit uh, in the middle. Maybe not. But that's the lower right-hand corner. And I'll tell you the story behind that picture, which you can barely see. The, the big screen, what counts is wealth and and Success. And in the little screen, I'll tell you the story. This is a woman I met in Nepal. I was getting a tour of a leprosarium, the Green Pastures Hospital. And while we were given the tour, I saw this woman. I got to say, she's the ugliest human being I've ever seen in my life. She had had leprosy for years. Her feet were all worn away. They were bandaged. She had no fingers left. Her eyes were covered with calluses. She'd been blind for years. Her nose had shrunken back into her skull. So when you looked at her, you looked right into the skull. Not a pretty sight. And she couldn't walk. So while we were getting a tour of the hospital, she dragged herself like an animal. She would plant her elbows and, and come over and grad, gradually came over to the sidewalk where she had heard some voices. So we got the tour and then we came back. She had made her way all the way across the courtyard to the sidewalk. And I saw her and I thought, oh, yeah, she must be a beggar, poor poor." Woman. So I reached in my pocket to see if I had some Nepali coins to give her. And uh, my wife, who worked with, as a social worker with the down and out, the low in Chicago, had a very different and more holy reaction. She went over to this woman and put her arm around her. And the woman started singing. We don't know Nepali. We didn't have to. We knew the tune. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the doctor who was giving us the tour said, I want you to meet Don Maya. She's no beggar. She's the closest thing to a saint that we know. In fact, do you have any prayer requests? Don Maya's prayers get answered. And I thought, here is a woman who by any standard you can come up with is a miserable failure, no beauty, no success, nothing on her resume, no money, and yet, the spirit of God who created the universe said, I could make a comfortable home in Don Maya. And did. And did. So here we are. The church, the followers of that little screen. And we hear and read the Sermon on the Mount. We try to put it into practice. And it's tough, man. I was at a restaurant the other night, and somebody had one of the old, the waiter had, a, had the old WWJD bracelet, what would Jesus do? And I don't want to ask that question anymore. For one thing, you could never predict when he was here what he was going to do. <laughs> so why should we be any better at figuring it out? And for another thing, um, you know, I don't, I, Paul didn't do what Jesus did. I mean, look at how Paul handled the Roman justice system compared to how Jesus did. I think the question is more, what would Jesus have me do? And that's when it gets complicated. Because there are some things that Jesus really muddies, really muddies. And that's why 2,000 years later, we're having a weekend seminar trying to figure out some of those things. I found Jesus doesn't really help with politics. He doesn't, he doesn't really seem to, seem to give a fig about politics. 
who would you rather vote for? Oh, well, let me see. Nero, Caligula, uh, take your pick. Doesn't really matter. So how about uh, what should we do with politics? Well, give to Caesar what's his and God what's his. How does that help, you know? Um, should we live like Shane Claiborne surrounded in, in, in the inner city, surrounded by crack dealers? Or, or can you live in Evergreen, Colorado, like I do, surrounded by elk? <laughs> Politics is big in the evangelical world today. Abortion, homosexuality, you hear more about that than almost anything else. Jesus didn't mention either one, even though every person in the world would judge illegal what they were doing in his day. They didn't abort at 12 weeks or whatever. They waited for the babies to be born in Rome, and then they abandoned them by the side of the road, fully out of the womb human beings. And Jesus didn't say a word about it. Homosexuality, the, the main practice they had back then was pederasty, which is still illegal in every place I know. And yet here are these huge issues that, that we talk about a lot, and Jesus didn't even mention them. That's weird. So how do we figure those things out? It, it gets more complicated, not less. I was watching on the news this morning. Billy Graham had his birthday party, 95th birthday party, and they were going through the guest list. Sarah Palin, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, uh, okay, who would be on Jesus' birthday party list? What I do know in following Jesus through the Gospels is that most people who invited him over for dinner later regretted it. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> I, I went to Highlands Church here in Denver one time. I don't know, some of you here from Highlands Church? And uh, Jenny Morgan was speaking, a friend of mine, and she was go telling the story of the widow with her two mites. It's a King James word. It doesn't mean bedbugs. It's uh, <laughs> pennies, you know, small coins. And, and she said, when I stare at this story, I think, okay, G Jesus commended the, the, the widow and contrasted her to the rich person, but, but he didn't do anything about the corrupt temple system. She was just kind of supporting this corrupt system. Why didn't Jesus talk about justice? And she talked about that, and then she said, well, I've concluded that Jesus leaves the justice issue up to us. And I think she's right. He leaves a lot of issues up to us. And that's a problem. You, Jay talked last night about Jesus' PR problem. We are Jesus' PR problem. Woody Allen, Hannah and her sisters, if Jesus came back and saw what was going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. Well, that's a little harsh. But we are the ones in that act three who represent to the world what God is like. If you ask that little Jewish girl, what is God like? Would she come up with this group, your church, me? We're the Jesus left behind. That's a PR problem. That's complicated. I'll give you just a couple more puzzlers. I mentioned the, the lifestyle issue. I took some courses at the University of Chicago. I, would, uh, I lived in the north side of Chicago, and I would get on the elevated train and, and miles down. And then I'd get off the train, and I'd go through this terrible neighborhood. And I'd pass these storefront churches all over the place. Uh, full, this one, Christ, Divine, Love, Baptist Church. You see, they're whole blocks that are kind of rubble and then a little storefront church in the middle. And, and then I would go to the University of Chicago with these gothic buildings and these high-priced professors and pay all this money to study T.S. Eliot and John Donne and George Herbert. Those were the classes I took. And I thought, who but Jesus could inspire both <laughs> these graduate students at the University of Chicago, this, this, the greatest poetry uh, written, and then churches like this. That's pretty impressive that all of them, <laughs> including these agnostic kids, found something of great worth in writing that was inspired by Jesus. But it's complicated because you know, I read Shane Claiborne and I think about that big picture, little picture, and I try to figure out, okay, where do I fit? I, a couple weeks ago, just a week ago, I was in Michigan at a CS, oh, I just blew it. 
Show the next picture, please. Yeah, I was going to ask you, who, do you know who that is? It's C.S. Lewis. Okay. <laughs> On an iPhone. Hey. <laughs> okay, so C.S. Lewis, it's the, it's the 50th anniversary of his death. And in just about a week, maybe two weeks, November 22nd, he will be enshrined in, in Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey, which is a, a wonderful thing. Okay, so you've got... You've got the people like the Shane Claibornes and the Mother Teresas and the St. Francis, and then you've also got the C.S. Lewis. He, he wasn't surrounded by rubble and crack dealers. He was surrounded by a nice garden in Oxford and, and a pipe and a pub down the road. And yet here we are 50 years after his death, and tragically, he's still the greatest apologist of our century, dead for 50 years. <laughs> Is there a place? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus have me do? It's not easier. It's harder. And the last, and the last puzzler I'll give you is morality. We think, people think, okay, religion's about being good, religion's about morality, so here's this great teacher, he'll help us. <laughs> good luck. What does Jesus do? Here's what I see Jesus doing. What I see Jesus doing is taking the ideals and pushing them so high, nobody can ever meet them. You've never murdered. Have you ever been angry? You've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? In fact, his morality is be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He just pushes it higher so that nobody can say, like the Pharisees were used to saying, I've done it, been there, I've arrived. No. Anytime somebody suggested something like that, he'd push it so high. And yet, he held out a safety net of grace so low that the prostitutes and the beggars and the traitors and those who followed him, you could never say, I fell too low. You can't say that about Jesus. Interesting what the church has done, making some broad generalizations, but... It seems like we do almost the opposite. Some churches keep lowering that ideal. This used to be wrong. Now, maybe that's not wrong, but we got another one here. Okay, okay, now this is acceptable. Okay, now this is acceptable. We keep lowering the ideal. And then other churches, more conservative churches, keep raising the bar of grace. We don't want that kind of person in our church. Yeah, we keep going like this. Jesus keeps going like that. And that, that complicates things. We're all guilty, yet we're all forgiven. And there's hope. It's as if Jesus, all the way through the Bible, in fact, that God, God chose the least likely characters. So the great characters of the Old Testament are people like Moses, who had needed an anger management class and killed a person, and, and David, who did that and also committed adultery. And, and, and in the New Testament, you've got... Peter, I never knew the blankety-blank about a guy he had followed for three years and had seen do all those miracles. And then a guy, a human rights abuser who made his living persecuting Christians. That'll be my first missionary. So that not one of us can say, I don't qualify. I read an article on sexual sins. I know a lot of us struggle with sexual pornography, all of that. And they said the, real, the author said the real tragedy of the sexual sin isn't that you do it. That's bad. That's not healthy for you. The real tragedy is that when you do it, you think, now I'm unworthy and unusable by God. And if you read anything in the New Testament, it's that you never reach that point. <laughs> that God is in the business of making the unusable usable. I look at the Bible and the conclusion I get is God uses the talent pool available. We are the Jesus left behind. And that's not a mistake. That's God's plan all along. You know, some people look at the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and they think, oh, it's kind of like the Broncos. You know, we had a running game with Tim Tebow. That didn't work, so let's try the passing game with, Brent, with Brendan Manning, Peyton Manning. <laughs> that's not how it works, but... But it's clear that it's a progression all the way through. And you read the exalted words that Paul writes about the church, the mysteries of the heavens, explaining to powers that are invisible. This is what gives God joy, what gives God pleasure. 
I'm going to close with an illustration that, if you've heard me speak, you may have heard this illustration because it, I like it. It comes from my town, Evergreen, Colorado. Up in the hills, you can kind of see the mountains from where we are. Evergreen, Colorado has a high school, and unlike a lot of high schools in Colorado, uh, may not last long since Amendment 66 failed, but uh, it still has an orchestra, a high school orchestra. And every once in a while, in fact, fairly often, that orchestra will tackle a piece of music that they probably should not. <laughs> and so here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned about part three, the Jesus left behind. I've learned that when the Evergreen High School Orchestra plays Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, don't blame Beethoven. <laughs> it's not his fault. But on the other hand, the only way that a lot of people tucked into the foothills that you can see from this church, west of Denver, Colorado, have ever heard of Beethoven and have ever heard any of his music is because of the Evergreen High School Orchestra. And that was God's plan. God could do with a snap of a finger. God gets more pleasure by watching us do ineptly, fumblingly the will of the Father. We are the Jesus left behind. Jesus makes some things very clear, makes some things very muddy. And here we are, still trying to figure them out. Thank you very much. Well, let's uh, have a little conversation with Philip. You can tweet in your questions. You can even stand up and ask them, write them on a piece of paper. And somebody can tell me when we've got a tweet. Okay, here we have one. How does sin affect the ways in which the bride of Jesus faithfully reflects and represents her groom to the world? Have at it, Philip. <laughs> and you can pass also or, you know, complicate it further. I have a briefcase here, and I want to read you a passage from a book that relates to that. Uh, you have a quote question. on that question. I do. It just happens yeah. to be in your briefcase. That's right. <laughs> this is looking kind of suspicious. Did your wife tweet that? When in doubt, uh, read somebody else. Uh, this is an interesting book. Uh, Tom, you may, have, you may have read this, Francis Spufford, uh, Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. And it's by uh, a British professor, and I, I meant to read it, and I left it in my briefcase, so here's a good time. It's talking about Jesus. He and his friends came wandering into town on the Holy Saturday when you're not supposed to work or to travel or to do anything much. And they're chewing, they're laughing, they're picnicking in the street as they stroll along. Challenged, he says, rules are, not for the, rules are for the people, not the people for the rules. When the crowds gather, he sits them down in the sheep pasture and he says, behave as if you never had to be afraid of consequences. Behave as if nothing you gave away could ever make you poorer. Behave as if this one day we're in now were the whole of time and you didn't have to hold anything back or to plot and scheme about tomorrow. Don't try to grip your life with tight, anxious hands. Unclench those fingers, let it go. If someone asks for your help, give them more than they've asked for. If someone hits out at you, let them. Don't retaliate. Be the place the violence ends. Because you've got it wrong about virtue. It isn't something built up from a thousand careful, carefully measured acts. It comes when it comes in a rush. It comes from behaving so far as you can like God himself. Whenever anyone asks Jesus about the law, he usually ups the ante. He amps the law up toward a perfectionist impossibility in which anger is forbidden as well as murder, in which desire can be as much a betrayal as adultery. 
he talks as if virtue is almost unachievable, yet compulsory. He annoys people when he talks like this because the implication of his perfectionism is that everybody is guilty. And if everybody is guilty, nobody gets to congratulate themselves. Hmm. And murderers and adulterers cannot be shunned. Hmm. So to this question, the typical response would be, oh, the church should be better. So that when people look at us, they say, okay, they're morally superior. I can understand that. But I think actually the, what the watching world needs more is a realization that even though I am bad, there is still hope, mm. there is still forgiveness. Mm. And I keep falling back on that model from Alcoholics Anonymous because I think they've got it right. You, you never go into an AA meeting and say, hi, I'm Philip and I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not as bad as Bart there. He's a cocaine <laughs> addict. <laughs> I mean, they'd be all over me in, yeah. a, in a second. We, we, none of us can make it on our own. Herein is grace. And we don't have to. Hmm. And we don't have to. And I think that's what the church should strive to be. We're not going to be a... The Mormon church is a very moral group. If you want a group to hang around, they're, they're a great group. Uh, we, we are a group founded on grace, we're founded on forgiveness, and I, I wish we would concentrate more on being that environment where it's a church for sinners and saints. We're mm -hmm. all welcome. We believe in the ideal, we're following that little screen Jesus, but none of us is making it, mm -hmm. and there's hope and use and forgiveness in the middle of that. Mm. Thank you. Great. Great. See if we have any others here. How have you learned to approach the blurry edges of faith? What place do they hold? Um, I make my living by writing about them. <laughs> um, they hold a very dear place in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> they pay your mortgage. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, it's not easy to believe. It, it's just not easy to believe. For some people, I guess it is. In some countries, it seems to be easier. But in a, in a post-scientific, post-modern, post-Victorian doubters world, there's a lot of reason not to believe. And uh, I, one thing I do is try not to seal myself off from the people who are truly asking those questions. Mm and to try to arrange times when I am with people who are asking those questions. Mm -hmm. So as I look at Jesus' complaints about the Pharisees, I try to figure out, okay, what is it that's at the root of these complaints? They're competing, they're, they're legalistic, they're getting all these things wrong. And I finally concluded the main thing Pharisees did was hang around other Pharisees all day. Mm -hmm. And so they forgot what the kingdom of God was about, and Jesus reminded them. And I, I think uh, it's important for us not just to be a bulwark of faith where we kind of circle the wagons and, and defend orthodoxy against that, the bears out there, but rather uh, get to know some of them, mm. get to love some of them, and, and truly consider the questions that they're asking. That's been important for me. And I, uh, it's, I, I'm ra I'd rather be around people who are just like me. And, but that's not comfortable, and mm -hmm. that's not grace either. There are people, Tom Wright is a great example of someone who can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with those in the, in the public square and deal with those questions, always with humility and gentleness and, uh, you know, there are other people who, Francis Collins, people like that with great gentleness and humility, even debate the Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and people like that. But the, the blurry, I don't want to deny that there are still blurry areas in my own faith. There certainly are. And I keep searching. There, I read the Old Testament, and there are a lot of times I wish it wasn't there. You know, I just wish this passage wasn't there. I wish this story hadn't happened. That's one of the blurry edges. 
contradictions in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff. A, a book that was quite helpful to me is a book called The Bible Made Impossible by Christian Smith. Some of you have read it, I know. And it's a book that says, let's concentrate on what the Bible is about. Let's put the magnifying glass on the Bible itself. The Bible is primarily about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. And there's the prequel, how we got to Jesus. And then there's the sequel, and mm. we're living in that sequel now. And I, I think it's important uh, to keep the magnifying glass focused on what's most important, and then to wander out into the blurry edges with helps, and preferably not alone. Don't practice this alone. Do it with trusted people who can handle it. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. you. You said that this conference or gathering should be called the Complicatedly Jesus Gathering, and as one of the organizers, I agree. Uh, uh, what is the most complicated thing you yourself have wrestled with or one of the most complicated things about following Jesus? I guess for me personally, it's, it's that lifestyle issue. Um, Jesus chose the, the, uh, the via negativa, as the, as the later followers phrased it. He was, he was the the homeless person, the, the prophet who spoke in extremes, he didn't answer the questions. He didn't, he didn't make it practical. Someone would come up, now what do I do about my brother's inheritance? <laughs> you get no help from Jesus and something like that. And uh, that's, that's been very hard for me. I went through the 1960s. Uh, we tried to live as simple as possible. And, and you, you, never, you never out Jesus Jesus, you know? <laughs> And, and yet that stuff, that stuff is there. Shane Claiborne says one of the things that struck him and convicted him was you can't worship a homeless person on Sunday and ignore one on Monday. Hmm. But I, I do it all the time, you know? I pull off the expressway ramp and there's some guy there and I rationalize, oh, it's part of the mafia, blah, blah. And... and <laughs> And we lived in downtown Chicago through my wife primarily. We were involved in inner city ministry, and I, I support that. I think it's so important. I admire those people. You know, their vans get broken into. They don't make any money. They get stabbed. You know, it's, it's tough. And, but I can't write my books in that environment with car alarms going off all the time. So we eventually moved to Colorado, and I love it and feel guilty at the same time. So that's, that's what's hard for me. You're kind of a conflicted person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got another one up here. Are there any portions of God's character that is not perfectly in line with the Jesus we see in the Gospels? Are there any portions of God's character that are not perfectly in line with what we see in Jesus in Boy, the Gospels? Boy, <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful question. And... Uh, 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 N.T. Wright's going to deal with it tomorrow morning, I think. Um, <laughs> Tom, you're going to have to deal with a lot. Yeah, of are, We've been are, throwing a lot your way, your I'm just telling you. <laughs> but uh, I like to quote this, this uh, quote from Archbishop William Temple, who said, In God is no unchristlikeness at all. Beautiful quote. In God is no unchristlikeness at all. And so that, that quote says there is no characteristic like that. That's a fancy way of saying, if you want to know what Jesus, if you don't want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And Paul says, he's the express image of the invisible God. So, okay, so I, I, I mentioned that quote one time at a conference in Canada, and I got a very thoughtful letter from, a, from an Anglican pastor. And he says, you know, I, I appreciate that quote, I believe it, and how do you reconcile that with, and then he went through all these stories of the Old Testament, and he said, isn't that unchristlike?" <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I, I can talk about progressive revelation, God's dealing with people at, at this level. And, and I mean, we know, we know that there is a progression and we know that what Jesus described is, is so much better than the 613 rules in Leviticus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy because Jesus himself said so. But there's a bunch of stuff back here that doesn't seem Christ-like mm. that is ascribed to God. And mm -hmm. that's, I don't know mm. what to do with that, but Tom does, we'll tell you okay. tomorrow. Well, we'll, we'll hit that one tomorrow. <laughs> okay, how is it possible to engage with today's political and moral issues without diminishing 
Jesus' reputation? How is it possible to engage with today's political moral issues without diminishing Jesus' reputation? Politics is an adversary sport. You've got uh, opponents who are against each other. And Christianity, we're not supposed to use that word, right? It's all right. Following it's all right. Jesus, yeah. Tibbs, Alvo. <laughs> Following Jesus is the opposite. It's about loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you. They don't go together very well. And you can see in the current United States Congress what happens in, in an adversary position like that. So when you try to apply the, quote, ethic of Jesus, the way of Jesus, into politics, usually, guess which one loses? Yeah. There are ways. Martin Luther King talks about, as a Christian minister, he had almost given up on the possibility of loving anything other than one human being. I can love one human being, but how do I love white people? You know, how do I love a group? And then he found through Mahatma Gandhi, who found it through the Sermon on the Mount, actually, he found, yes, you can. Through nonviolence, you can love even mm. your enemy. And um, so he, he said, I'm, I'm never going to be like my adversary. I'm not going to respond in kind. And I will continue to love them. And I will continue to pray for them. And that should be where we start, mm. I think, when, when we get into politics. Um, But I just don't see very many good examples of that happening. Mm. There was one in my church. I was speaking on prayer and showed, uh, well, I guess I said, yeah, I showed some pictures of Al-Qaeda terrorists because Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I said, okay, what are, what are our enemies like? And I flashed a PowerPoint of Al-Qaeda terrorists. And I said, what would it be like if every church in the United States adopted one of these guys? They are our enemies. They're trying to kill us. And learned and pronounced their name, and, and prayed for them. Didn't Jesus tell us to do that? Just pray for them. Would that make any difference? <laughs> like I say, it's an adversary sport. Um, so anyway, uh, are you we'll sure with, they weren't talking about me? We'll deal with Oh. <laughs> so there was a guy in the audience who's in the Army. He's based in Colorado Springs. And, and yet that convicted him. His job is to kill people who are in Al-Qaeda. But he said, Jesus told me to do this. So he started a website. And you can, it's still going. You can go on. It's called atfp.org. Adoptaterroristforprayer.org. <laughs> And he's got all these pictures and little bios of all the terrorists trying to kill Americans. And you could go on and agree to pray. So like Osama bin Laden had hundreds of people. Uh, I don't know if they're still praying for him, but you know. And, <laughs> so there are ways. Um, we, we, don't use, we use the weapons of grace, hmm. the weapons of love, hmm. as Jesus did. Um, but that's, that's a huge issue. Maybe Tom will talk about that tomorrow, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, inter it's interesting that one, I can think of two examples in American history where something like the ethic of Jesus was applied nationally. One uh, was after World War II with the yeah. rebuilding of Europe and Japan. Where Now, that's after devastating an enemy. Yeah. We rebuilt them, so there's some difference there. And yet, it seems to have worked uh, beautifully there. And, of course, in when Lincoln, uh, near the end of his life, uh, set the tone for what would happen after the Civil War, that we would welcome them back, the South, as, as separated brothers, so to speak, and rebuild the South. So yeah. I think there are a, f uh, a few small examples. And interestingly, they worked. I mean, they, yeah, they arguably worked quite well. Yeah. We've got time for a couple more. How do you bring together differing views on Jesus' motives and methods to reach towards true unity in ministry? How do you bring together differing views on Jesus' motives and methods to reach toward true unity in ministry? <laughs> I, would, 
It, I'm sure there's something behind that, that, like some disagreements about motives and methods. It, it's hard for me to envision Jesus' motives and methods. You know, he seems so unmethodical mm. to me. Mm. Uh, his, his, his motive was love, and his method was love and compassion, it seemed like. Now, there are other things going on, too, obviously. But um, he was so different than the programmatic church. We're, we're so interested in saving the world and changing the world and, and twisting people's arms. And Jesus didn't have any of that. In fact, he, if anything, he was offensive in his sermons. And people would walk away so that he would say to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? You know, you're the only ones left. So he didn't seem concerned about church growth and some of those things uh, at all. And his, his method was just be faithful and consistent and, and live out his calling. But how we apply that in, in modern, you know, in the corporation of the church, I think is really tricky. I, mm. Paul would be a much better person to look at for that because he was much more methodical mm. and uh, was clear about his motives. Jesus, again, he's a slippery character. He's hard to pin down. Mm. Even his family at that one place tried to come because they thought his methods were somewhat suspect. He right. was driving, they said they thought he was out of his mind He's and they came rocker. to yeah. take charge of him. Yeah. It didn't work very well. Um, he kept doing what he was doing. Well, we're going to keep this conversation going. I'm going to have Barry come back up here and sort of tell us what our next, uh, next uh, agenda item is. Philip, thanks. Let's thank Philip for his time. And <laughs>